I'm not really the kind of person who complains about the weather. I've got a whole litany of inconsequential and esoteric complaints to draw on at any given moment. But this summer, I've turned into a raving lunatic because it's just too damn hot. This is what global warming feels like in its early stages. That's writer and environmentalist Bill McKibben. Now, for decades, he's been one of the planet's most outspoken defenders. But this summer, he has a piece in Rolling Stone magazine called Global Warming's Terrifying New Math, and it basically outspeaks everything he's ever written. Listen to him talk about the weather, and you really do feel like we've arrived at the last days. This summer, it's uh, record wildfires in New Mexico and Colorado, but the real heat has been a little further east across the Midwest and the Atlantic seaboard. And we've broken every kind of record, 3,200 temperature records broken in June. That followed the weirdest heat wave we've almost ever seen in this country in March when we had a kind of summer in winter. Two days before the end of winter, it was 94 degrees in parts of South Dakota. Uh, Two summers ago, it was Pakistan, uh, the worst flooding ever there, 20 million people out of their homes, the Indus River covering a quarter of the country. At the same moment, um, you know, uh, uh, Russia was having its worst heat wave and drought ever that sent the price of grain spiking on global markets. It's one of the things that analysts say uh, was one of the underlying conditions that led to the Arab Spring as people, you know, struggled to to find enough to eat, pay for the food that they needed. Uh, uh, you know, and, and ever since, just one example after another, the worst flooding in Thailand's history or in Central America's here in Vermont, where I live. We got our dose last fall. Uh, uh, Hurricane Irene dropped more rain than we'd ever seen. It washed half the state away. We're still in recovery mode. Um, in the same time, you know, horrific heat waves and droughts. Last summer, it was the Southwest. Texas and Oklahoma set records for the warmest summers uh, ever recorded in the U.S. We think half a billion trees died in the drought in Texas last summer. Uh, this is completely. It's not just off the charts, it's off the wall. The charts are tacked, too. And it means that, you know, that we're now past the point where we're going to stop global warming. The question is how bad we're going to let it get. I wrote, you know, the first book about climate change for a general audience, or one of them, back about 23 years ago. And back then it was still pretty theoretical. Uh, This is what scientists told us was going to happen if we didn't do something about it. And we didn't do something about it, and now it's happening. The the scary news is less what's going on this summer, though that's plenty scary. I mean, the pictures of the drought are really horrific. What's scary is that this is what happens with one degree of global warming, and the same scientists who told us that that was going to happen are robust in their prediction that unless we get off coal and gas and oil far faster than any government's currently planning to, uh, uh, we will see four or five degrees before the century is out, and there's much of that locked in very soon. And there's really no reason to think that our civilizations can even really cope with that kind of change. Uh, you know, the, the, the latest 
studies from Stanford and the University of Washington show that from this point on, each degree increase in global average temperature should reduce grain yields about 10%. And you get a feeling for that this year watching the American Midwest. Uh, we can't have a world that works with 20 or 30, 40% fewer calories on it than we have now. That's just not possible. And yeah. yet that's right where we're aiming. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of ways to talk about climate change. And you've been, as you just said, writing about these issues since, you know, 1989. But it seems that now you're, you really want to move the conversation to, to math, which I find strange because, you know, so many Americans are terrible at math. <laughs> but, you know, in this piece, you, this is something, it seems like a departure for you. And, and, and it, first, you want to give us three numbers to focus on. And I'm wondering if you could, you could talk about these. Sure. Here are the numbers. The first is two degrees Celsius. That's the maximum temperature increase that the world's leaders and governments have uh, agreed that we could possibly risk. Uh, it's actually much too high a figure. Uh, as I've said before, one degree is already getting us in all kinds of trouble and two will be worse. But consider it some kind of red line, some kind of bottomist of bottom lines. It's the one thing that everyone from Barack Obama to the United Arab Emirates, you know, has, has put their name to. So that's the, that's the first number. Next number is 565 gigatons of carbon. That's about how much more we can burn if we're to have any hope of staying below that two degree line. Um, uh, it comes from, you know, a, a long series of big, huge computer model simulations of the climate that unfortunately have proven entirely accurate. Um, so 565 gigatons. Now we're burning carbon as a planet at the rate of about 31 gigatons a year and increasing about 3% a year. So if you do the math, that means we'll blow through that 565 gigatons in about the next 16 years or so. So that's another scary number. So the third number, the kind of new one and the really scary one, is 2795, 2,795 gigatons. Last year, a team in the UK of environmentalists and accountants uh, did the work for a little report of putting together how much carbon the fossil fuel companies and the countries that act like fossil fuel companies, you know, i.e. Venezuela or Kuwait or something, how much they had in their reserves. Um, that number, 2795, is obviously five times the amount that uh, we can burn, but we're planning to burn it. It's still below ground, but it's the number, those reserves that set the share price for Exxon or Shell. Uh, it's the number that they borrow money against. It's, it's physically still below ground, but it's economically already, in a certain sense, up in the atmosphere, uh, up in the economy. They're planning to burn it. The only conclusion from those numbers is that we could have a healthy business model for the fossil fuel industry, or we could have a relatively healthy planet, but we can't have both. And something's going to have to give. 
it, Atlanta is a very um, spread out community and our traffic has just continued to sprawl into the outer suburbs and, and the traffic is just getting worse. That's Chris Haley, an Atlanta driver who let me tag along with him on his morning commute. I came to Atlanta to learn about their new hot lanes. A hot lane uses variable pricing to deal with congestion, so the more traffic there is, the more it costs. Lots of cities around the country are putting these hot lanes in, but the Georgia DOT's gone on record to say that Atlanta's future lies not with rail, not with bikes, not with sidewalks, but hot lanes. Um, we're coming up to a sign right here that it's going to tell you, I think, the, the price that you would pay uh, to go to the next segment as well as to go to the, the end of the, the hotline stretch itself. Um, so right now, if I wanted to go from this exit to Jimmy Carter, I would only pay 50 cents. If I wanted to go to the end of the line at Shalliford, I'd pay it $1.60. Yeah, but look at this. We are, we're coming to a, a standstill, and you're telling me that for 50 cents, you could be like that guy in the in the minivan. Well, for, well for, for my particular commute, I'd have to, at this point, pay $1.60 to go uh, to the end of the line and then go beyond that. Um, it's easy to say, yeah, I'll pay $1.60 now to do that, and then $1.60 on the way home. And then the next day, it's, the full commute is 3 or $4 each way. That's $8 a day. I gotta go into work 22 days on average in a month. That's, that's just not where I wanna spend my money. What they did was remove an existing high occupancy vehicle lane that had been implemented years ago to encourage carpooling and, and had actually achieved uh, a good deal of success with that. They took that lane away and replaced it with a high occupancy toll lane. And overnight, not only did the traffic got wor get worse, we overturned a decade worth of efficiency and carpooling uh, encouragement. Overnight, the argument that had been put in place to make this HOV lane uh, in the first place, suddenly it was thrown out the window. Nah, that argument wasn't good. We're going to go to this new argument, which was to offer an alternative um, for people who need to get to their destination within a limited amount of time. And, and in and of itself, it does achieve that goal, but at a greater cost than I think that it's worth and, and a lot of other people think. We're now at a standstill again, and we're watching these cars fly by in the hot lane. It does seem that like I'm making the choice to be a loser by sitting here. Well, I guess it's a matter of perspective. You know, if you if you if you frame the success as uh, a small amount of people can can get to their destination in a, a fixed amount of time, well, it's it's a wonderful success. But um, at a at a great expense that the rest of us have to incur a longer delay. Cars that are going up there are, liter I mean, maybe that's irony, but the cars that, the last four cars that just passed us are pretty high-end cars, you know? High-end pickup trucks were in Atlanta, but those were expensive trucks, trust me. Like many Atlantans I met, Kurt Thompson, a Democratic state senator, calls the hot lanes Lexus lanes. He says they only benefit the wealthy and make things worse for everyone else. Even the fellow that designed hot lanes said to the, to the CERTA board um, when they were coming up with this, the State Road and Tollway Authority, when they were figuring out what type of hot lane project to build, that we had picked the least effective, um, most prone to failure version of this, and that we particularly, we basically picked this, I'm sorry, because it was the cheapest way to do it, not because it was the right way to do it. 
it actually created no new capacity. What you got is this. If you really get them in a corner, they will tell you, and they did testify, this is not about improving traffic times. It's not about improving the non-attainment issue about our carbon dioxide emissions from our cars. It's just about giving options to people who can afford it. We're not talking about soda here and, and having a bunch of different varieties of soda. And if you don't mind um, corn, high fructose corn syrup, you can go straight to the high test Coca-Cola. And if you want extra caffeine, we got that for you. If you want super healthy, we got that for you. It's not that kind of choice. We all have to use this road. And so you're offering choices um, choices that only people who have affluence can use on any kind of regular basis. You know, that matrix of a success doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Well, here we are, we're almost at a complete standstill. I mean, you, you know, you've got, you, you, you know, you can, you can afford maybe to get in there. Are you really telling me that you're going to spend the rest of your life sitting here, stalled in traffic, you're never going to like wake up one day and say, that's it? No, I'm not. I've, I've managed to structure my life in such a way that I don't have to do that. Like, you know, we have a saying, if, if, you, um, if you feed a stray cat, you have a cat. Um, if, I, if I start spending money on that, then I'm basically, then I become part of the problem. I become, I, I'm proving to them that, oh yeah, see, people will eventually suck it up and pay for that. Even you, the person who's been on TV opposing this. Describe what we're about to do. So about to get in the hot lane. So exciting. Here we go. Ah. So, so luxurious, not many cars in it right now. Clint Keener totally mocks the idea that the hot lanes are just for rich people. And as we cruise down the highway in his Ford Focus, he points out all the nice cars that are stalled in the general traffic. Oh look, oh there's a BMW. Oh there's a new 5 Series BMW. Oh my God, they're so poor. Let's see, what other, oh there's a Mercedes. There's a little Acura. These, these poor people in their Mercedes can't, can't compete with my focus. When it started, traffic started getting really bad, my commute would probably be an hour and a half or so, and now it's about 30 minutes for the same distance. So it's a good feeling to pass 300,000 people a morning and get to work on time, fresh, not stressed out. Yeah, I like, I like choice. I like being able to go around all these crazy people in traffic. Um, I really don't think they'll ever, ever make trains ever. I, I think that's just, they would never do it because they're too hard-headed and don't see what we really need. But so be it. To me, my time is worth money. My time is worth a dollar. An hour out of my day is worth a dollar. It's basically as simple as that. But I want everybody to boycott it so there's nobody in my lane. that I had a, a nice, healthy hate relationship with sports. But after watching the Olympics for a week in my hotel room, I've taken it to a whole other level. Because that's how out of touch you are with, uh, with your own body, right? <laughs> <laughs> let me ask you a couple of questions. Let's get, All right. let's, well, let me put you on the couch here. Okay. Do you hate what sports stand for metaphorically in our culture? Yes. Do you hate dance? Do you hate all things physical? Yes. <laughs> hey now, I, I, last time I checked, 
Josh, you share the same sports politics as me. Yeah, well, I hate sports, but because of the nature of the work that I do, I do some things that I normally would not do for fun. For example, I spend a lot of time walking around supermarkets, walking around the hair care aisle. I go to a lot of malls. I read a lot of women's magazines and I watch Olympics on TV. Now, can you explain what it is exactly that you do? It's called being a semiotic cultural and brand analyst. That's what I do. How is that not just a fancy way of saying you work in advertising? Ad agencies and marketing firms come to semiotic brand analysis as a last resort. They spend 99% of their budget on the usual kind of what they imagine to be the hard science of market research, the, the focus groups and the, re, and the surveys. So what does an advertiser get from a semiotic brand consultant? The problem with focus groups and typical uh, market research is that the, when you're asking, doing this kind of crowdsourcing, asking people uh, to, to identify kind of deep emotional connections between themselves and brands and the kind of unspoken language and values that they have, they can only give you what's on the top of their mind. They can only give you the dominant coding uh, of the category or of the culture. So they can only tell you what's happening right now in communications. They can only tell you what's happening right now in pop culture. What you can if someone like me for is I can give you the whole picture. I can tell you what used to be the dominant coding. I can tell you what the dominant coding is now, and I can tell you what's going to be the dominant coding tomorrow. Give me an example. I can't give you too much. Ben, because I could get in oh, trouble. Oh, come on. Like, you know, just, I sign all just, kinds of non-disclosure agreements. Just give me one example, something you worked on. All right. So, for example, uh, 2011 uh, Mercedes Generation C-class TV spots. I don't know if you've seen those, but they talk about the new Generation C-class Mercedes is a, is a class ahead of the others. And all the other cars on the road are freaks and losers. So you're not even competing with other luxury brands. You're in your own class. You've created some class that that's beyond what anyone could even imagine. So this is an ad based on a hot new emerging code that you identify. Yeah, I call it class of your own. It's the idea that you're so special, so authentically and effortlessly deserving of affluence and success that ordinary rewards wouldn't make sense. So you're not even competing with, with you know, ordinary people. You are, um, you know, you are, you're, you're even better than the traditional elite. Now you sound like you're just talking about the Olympics again. Yeah, I mean, in fact, my first job ever back in 1999, back when I was a culture critic and uh, magazine publisher and journalist and so forth, I was hired by uh, an unnamed, wealthy, successful Bostonian to work on uh, Olympics. You, you did semiotics brand marketing for like the actual Olympics? Well, the Olympics is a brand. The Olympics is a product. And the thinking behind it was very crude. It was being sold as a sports event, as a big, huge, awesome sports event, which people didn't really think it was that awesome. Uh, people liked some parts of it. They liked a couple of the, you know, like, they might like skiing, they might like uh, weightlifting, they might like hockey. They might like one part of it, but nobody was buying into the whole Olympic as a package at that point. Like a lot of uh, brands who are in crisis, they need to think about forging a new emotional connection between the brand and its, poten its potentially huge uh, audience. Uh-huh. To build, to, 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 to cult the brand, as they say about brands like Apple and Harley-Davidson. They wanted to do that with the Olympics. You've you never told me this before. How did this even happen? Yeah, so this is 1999. The Olympics were very scandal-plagued uh, at that time. And uh, this affluent and successful Bostonian had been asked to step in and fix it. And he um, keeps his eye, like I do these days, he uh, kind of keeps his fingers in a lot of pies and 
watches a lot of channels and looks for uh, sources of inspiration that might help him in his work. And I think he must have become aware of my magazine Hermanot or my writing for Feed.com or something that I was doing back in those days came to his attention. Yeah, but what did he hire you to do? Okay, so let's think of this brilliant Bostonian as the ad agency hired by the brand. The brand is the Olympics. This brilliant Bostonian who hired me is the ad agency, and I'm a consultant to the ad agency. All right. The ad agency, uh, as with all my clients and all the brands that I work with, the ad agency has an idea about, you know, based on research they've done, and this is very, very sophisticated anthropological research, focus groups, standing behind the one-way mirror and, and watching people interact with the product, all that kind of stuff. They had an idea that the Olympics is about, ultimately, about affluence and success. Okay. And I think that's a, real, a brilliant uh, insight. And um, so, so the gold medal is like gold dollars in your bank yeah, account. You, you know, you're being a little crude in your analysis, but yes. How am I being crude? Because affluence and success aren't just about money. Uh, that's what that's the insight that we had back in '99. There's a very residual way that affluence is about about your possessions, about bling. So if you have the bling, if you have the shiny stuff, if you have the gold medal. Um, you have the status. And uh, the anxiety, the underlying anxiety is there, status anxiety. What good is having affluence and success unless everyone knows that you have it? So that's what we call identity branding, when the idea is that you want to have certain products that say something about you to others. So that's the whole thing that drives luxury brands. But that's very residual. So what this client of mine wanted, this powerful Bostonian, who may soon become one of the most powerful men in the world, wanted was to know what was going to be what was affluence going to be about tomorrow what was affluence going to be about in the future so that as they it's a long process to to get the olympics rebranded so that by 2004 2008 2012 what would be what would affluence be about then so so tell me then what is the emergent code of affluence okay in the in the emergent the affluence and success is like being a member of a religious cult it's about your faith and your beliefs it's not something that can be earned. It's a gift. It's a blessing. It's like um, the old the old idea of enthusiasm, um, which you know etymologically means God is in it. Please tell me you are, are not still working for these people. Well, I left the project after Soul. Uh, I took Morgan uh, Freeman's advice and went in a whole new direction after Soul. Um, not because I wasn't doing well. In fact, I was being groomed for a greater and greater things. He wanted me a, as part of his political campaign. I shouldn't even mention that he's that he's in politics now. But uh, I just I didn't see eye to eye with the guy. Um, I found the whole magic underwear thing very creepy. <laughs> oh, that's good. It's good to know that you you draw the line at magic underwear because I was beginning to think that you know you had no standards. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, if I watch the Olympics, will I be able to see these emergent codes? Yeah, I would encourage you if you want to get some enjoyment out of the Olympics, then I would suggest that you try to watch them through my eyes and see the Olympics as a contest, not about uh, who can get to the end of the swimming pool fastest, but as a contest among uh, residual dominant and emergent codes of affluence. Hmm, well, since you're already watching them for fun, can you just give me the, the, the Josh Glenn affluence code medal count? Who's winning? Who's winning? Yeah. The spirit of affluence, the idea that affluence is, is about expressing joy, and uh, not caring what other people think and not allowing other people to judge you and not following any rules of behavior and just enjoying this gift or this blessing that you've been given. That is what's winning right now in the Olympics. 
I'd be lying if I said the only reason I called up my ex-boyfriend was because I wanted someone to ride bikes with. But that's what I told him. And as one weekend biking around turned into three consecutive weekends together, I got more comfortable riding around on the bike and also comfortable with the idea of him becoming my ex-ex-boyfriend. I was wooed by the bicycle, okay? I met him on the internet last winter, but told everyone we ran into each other at a party. An easy lie that I told so often that I almost forgot that when we met, he told me I looked great in a thumbnail. I told the lie so often that I forgot the line of his profile that irked me the most, even then. I'm looking for young, enthusiastic women. Truthfully, I was just sick and tired of hanging out with losers. And the fact that he was interested in doing something other than drinking and that he answered my text messages sold me on him pretty quickly. He never really seemed to have much to do, though, outside of his freelancing, except for riding his bicycle. And he always had a spare bike lying around. One thing, though, was every time I came over to ride around with him, he always had a different, fancier, expensive spare bike. The new one always better than the last. When did you get the bike, I asked. Oh, I got rid of the old one. He was always very casual about it. The wheels were either too small, the frame was too heavy, the handlebars were strange. There was always some reason that the old bicycle needed replacing. A few weeks ago, during the heat wave, I went over to his apartment, hoping I could convince him to go to the beach with me. He suggested we ride our bikes out to Fort Tilden. Sure, I said, and as I look over to the bicycle in the corner of his apartment, I'm not surprised to see a shiny new $600 at least bike sitting there. It might as well have had price tags on it. Oh, I got that last week. The old one was too... The seat was uncomfortable, he says. I always like having a bike around, for my dates, you know, and I want it to be an easy ride. He pauses and says, sweetie, I'm so glad we're friends again. He always called me sweetie ever since I first met him, like I was his kid. He's got nine years on me, so I guess maybe that's possible? Like, galangularly? Incidentally, there's no Wikipedia page for youngest fathers, but there is one for list of youngest birth mothers. They all have to do with some kind of terrible molestation situation, and it's a terrifying and sad read. One entry from 1939, Lena Medina, was five years, seven months, and 17 days old. When we get to the beach, it's hot as hell. The sun is shining down like that one scene in The Stranger, the only one I ever remember from high school English class, when Merceau murders, thinking that the sun in his eye was what made him do it. And of course, we didn't bring an umbrella with us. An umbrella costs $20, sweetie, he says, and we don't need that. So he starts foraging around the beach for sticks. Find a big one, he tells me. I stay put instead, taking a long look at all of the nude people lolling and flopping around in the sand. We set up the tent, 
which is a fitted sheet over four missized sticks. And I sit there underneath the sheet, lying on my stomach, trying to get sunscreen on the middle of my back. I get sand in my water bottle. I get sand in my eyes. The sand is clumping together on my back, like cat piss soaked litter in a litter box. Since it's just the two of us, he says, we'll have to take turns going into the water so that one of us can watch the stuff. He says he'll go first and asks me not to leave the tent he made. I'll be back soon, he says. I watch him walking to the water and I realize why he became my ex-boyfriend. Sure, he responded to my text messages, so I let him lecture me on the ways of the world that I, a little young thing, would never know on my own. I eat some beef jerky and stare out of the tent when a group of attractive bike messenger types hit the beach. They throw down their bikes and jump in the water, all at the same time. They aren't worried that someone is going to steal anything. There's about 10 of them, a mixed group of men and women, tattooed and pierced, fit from riding their bikes all over the city. I notice my ex-boyfriend is checking them out too. He's practically frothing at the mouth, looking at all these people and their bikes. And this is when it hits me. I've totally been riding stolen bikes all summer. 30 minutes go by, and he's still in the water, swimming around the bike messengers, trying to make conversation with them. I wanted to get into the water to get a look at these bike messengers myself, but I'm stuck standing guard at the tent. The messengers play this game where they float in their backs for as long as possible, and he tries to join in too. But as soon as he starts floating, they turn around and swim away from him. I hid both our backpacks underneath the towels and run towards the ocean. He looks up at me and yells from 10 yards away, My iPhone will get stolen. Go back to the towels. I yell back, It's hot and I want to get into the water. No one's going to steal our stuff. I'll be out in 10 minutes, he says. There's a trail mix bar in my bag for you, sweetie. I can feel all the bike messengers staring at me. I'm totally embarrassed as I slink back to the tent and a kind of muscle memory activates to do what he tells me to do. I dive under the sheet, and after a few minutes, I open his backpack to look for the trail mix bar. I find a broken bike lock, one of those cheap plastic numbers cut through completely, and I also see the key for the bike I was riding. I take the key, put on my shoes, put on my backpack, and ride back to the city on the bike I just stole. nothing more humiliating than being carted by a 19-year-old kid at a convenience store when you're just trying to pick up a six-pack of beer on your way home. Normally, in my course of business, I have to go in and out of high-security buildings all the time. You go through security, usually I have to leave some ID when they give me a badge to be in the building. Now, I do this all the time. 
usually it's never a problem, but the other night when I left, I forgot to retrieve my driver's license. I didn't notice this until later that evening when I tried to buy some beer on the way home. So you couldn't sell this kid your, I forgot my ID at the office line. Right. I argue with the guy for a while, but it's not happening. He's like, no, I'm sorry, sir. We have a policy. I can't sell it to you. (laughs) So I skulk out of the store and I'm about ready to go home. But then, bam, the old programming kicks in. And I was like, I know how to do this. I used to buy beer. I'm just going to ask someone to buy me some beer. So the soccer mom pulls in, minivan, she gets out. And I said, excuse me, this is embarrassing, but... I left my ID at work, and I'm just trying to buy a six-pack of beer to go home. You're a grown man, my friend. I'm sure you terrified her. Yeah, she just, she, like, crinkled her nose and was like, no thank you, and walked into the store. So, I figure, I'll I'll give it one more try. I'm going to wait here for a second. And, luckily, a friend of mine pulls in, and... He's like, hey, man, what are you doing here? And I was like, this is ridiculous, but I left my ID at work. I just wanted to buy a six-pack of beer before I went home, and the kid won't sell it to me, and we kind of have a laugh about it. So you, you finally find someone who will listen to your sad story. Right. So we go back into the store. He buys some beer, and it was kind of nice because I was, like, standing there smugly looking at the kid while my buddy bought us a 12-pack of beer. <laughs> So I walk out, I'm like, thanks man, I owe you one. And he looks at me, he's kind of this weird look. He says, well, I, I kind of have a favor to ask you. I'm like, okay. He says, you have a gun on you, right? I say, yeah, you know, I always, I always carry a gun. He says, do you have two guns on you? I say, well, yeah, I, I, I usually have two guns. I kind of pull my jacket back a little bit. I got the one in the shoulder holster. I roll up my pant leg. I got the one in the in the ankle holster. Well, wait, are you... Uh, you're, like, walking around all the time with two guns? It's best to have a backup. So when I show him the two guns, he says, You want to go see Batman? And who is this psychopath again? He's another consultant. I work with him sometimes. Oh. So he sees that I have the two guns, and he's like, Hey, listen, I have these two passes to this NRA-sponsored private screening of the dark knight rises but it's like you forgot your id at work i forgot my gun at work and you have to bring a gun to get into the movie so this guy is basically asking if you'll spot him a firearm so you can both go see batman at a special nra screening yeah and how do you reply to this i'm like sure you've lost your mind so we get in the car he explains to me on the way there that Whenever there's a mass shooting, there's always this always kicks up a debate about gun control. And the NRA clearly hates this. So they've developed this rapid response program. They want to show that a bunch of people can sit and watch a movie heavily armed and everything will be fine. I can't believe you would go to this. It's really just like any other movie. We, we went in, we gave the guy our tickets we went to get some popcorn and then we just had to show the usher our guns before we went and sat down oh my god so we're sitting there we're waiting for the movie to start and the uh, a woman comes out she's the president of the local nra chapter and 
she says, thank you all for coming. You know, we're here to show that responsible gun ownership isn't dangerous to anyone. And, you know, kind of a rattles off a bunch of NRA boilerplate bullet point. Boilerplate bullet point. Exactly. So then she tries to do this sort of Steve Jobs thing. She says, oh, and there's one more thing. And right then this guy comes out and he's got... He's got an Obama mask on and he's wearing body armor. And she's oh like, oh no, God. it's Obama. He's here to take our guns. And all these people like pull their guns out and they're waving them in the air saying like, no, you'll never take our guns, you know, like stuff like that. And at this point I look to my right and there's this guy and he's got this giant pistol, Desert Eagle. And he's pointing it right. And everybody, most everybody else is like waving the guns over their head, you know, and yeah, you'll never take our guns from our, our from our cold dead hands. You know, you hear all these. Well, this guy's pointing it at the at the Obama person, and he doesn't have the safety on. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, buddy, whoa, you don't have the safety on. And he he says, oh, uh, uh, and you know, he it's clear he doesn't know where the safety is. He's like, he's looking at it, and while he's looking at it, he's pointing the thing right at me. I'm like, whoa, I kind of grabbed the gun. I'm like, oh, it's right here. And I, I flipped the safety for him. This is why the gun debate drives me so crazy. Because the issue is not, should this guy be allowed to have a gun? The issue is, how the hell did this guy get a gun? Maybe he bought it just so he could go to this screening of Batman. I don't know, but he, he did not know what he was doing. It's just despicable. So everyone, you know... Settles down, puts their guns away, we all sit down, the lights go down, and the movie starts. And about ten minutes in, it's the it's the scene where you first see Bruce Wayne, and he's kind of like walking around with his cane and, you know, looking a little beaten up. And the, this guy in front of me, he starts, he starts kind of coughing and, and wheezing, he's, he's pounding his chest a little bit. And um, finally he, he grabs his throat and he stands up. And... Uh, you know, he's choking. And so my instinct, I'm about to stand up and, you know, kind of slap him on the back, maybe give him the Heimlich. But as I do this, I look over, the guy next to me has stood up, drawn his Desert Eagle, pointed it at the guy, and is trying to squeak, trying to shoot him. Now, oh my God. Luckily, 10 minutes earlier, I had put the safety on, or that guy would be dead. So I grab the guy's gun and I, you know, jerk it down. I said, what the hell are you doing? And he he's like wide-eyed and, and sort of shaky. And he says, uh, uh, I thought it was a, a copycat. A copycat. Yeah. He totally pulled that out of his ass. Yeah. Well, meanwhile, my friend had like jumped over and gone to this guy's aid, you know, gave the guy the Heimlich and, <laughs> and blew a milk dud out of his throat. And this milk dud flew out and hit Cowboy right in the forehead. A milk dud. Yeah. Thank God I had put the safety on his gun, you know, 10 minutes before, or he would have blown this guy away. So you basically saved the NRA from a total disaster. Right. This whole NRA rapid response stunt literally, and I apologize for the pun, literally almost backfired.
Let's return to Bill McKibben, the writer and environmentalist. He's been talking to me about his piece for Rolling Stone magazine, about the fossil fuel industry and the terrifying numbers behind global warming. For me, the scariest quote in the whole piece came from the CEO of Exxon, Rex Tillerson, uh, speaking a couple of weeks ago and acknowledging for the first time as a uh, CEO of Exxon, first CEO of Exxon, our, our most profitable enterprise on earth, the biggest company in the Fortune 500, the company that made more money last year than any company in the history of money. Uh, Tillerson acknowledged for the first time that yes, global warming was in fact real, uh, something that his scientists have known for decades. But then he said, it's an engineering problem with engineering solutions. And the example he gave was, if we need to move our crop production areas, then we will. That's human beings adapt, which is, if you think about it even for a minute, insane. Um, by crop production areas, I believe he means farms. And if you look at a map of the world, there's no place to go move all our farms into. When you can't grow corn in Iowa because it's gotten too hot and dry, you can't just skip up to the tundra and grow it because there's not 100 feet of topsoil there. Um, um, this is the kind of reckless thinking that the fossil fuel industry has been engaging in for years, and the reason they engage in it is because they are making so much money. Yeah, but is it is by saying there are engineering solutions, is it just empty words? I mean, there's part of me that when he says, you know, moving all of our farms makes me think of like Bruce Willis in a spaceship, like sucking up all the carbon. Like they, do they really believe like in this sort of Hollywood movie that like we can, you know, roll up our sleeves and with American engineering ingenuity solve this problem? Problem or no, is this they just really, a cover up? They really don't care about this problem because you know their problem is how do we make forty-five billion dollars again in profit this year, just like we did last year. Yeah, so I want to come back to Rex Tillerson's comment here because I, I would think that there are, like yourself, many environmentalists who've been waiting for this day where someone in this position of power says climate change is real, global warming is happening, but that's not. But it, it's not exactly what he's saying. He's not admitting that the problems causing this are happening. He's actually saying something else. He's just skipping from there is no problem to, to there's not a problem we have to deal with. Uh, you know, someone will figure out. I mean, I mean, yeah, in the back of his mind, there's probably Bruce Willis is about as close as you get, you know. Um, there's some magic answer that doesn't involve them having to change. And if you think about it, <clears throat> I mean, what they're really saying is we're not willing to adapt our business model. So we're going to expect, say, all the world's farmers to adapt where they grow their food. Uh, a couple of years ago, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, uh, which is the biggest front industry for the front group for the oil industry and fossil fuel industry, they filed a brief with the EPA telling them not to take action on climate change and saying, if by some odd stretch of imagination, all the world scientists turn out to be correct and the planet really is heating, we don't need to worry because human beings can adapt their uh, behavior and physiology in order to deal with a hotter world. Not that their member companies might want to adapt their business plan to deal with, say, solar power or wind power. Rather, the, you know, the rest of us should adapt our anatomy. And I, I don't know what they had in mind. I don't know, grow gills. I don't know what. But 
it's you know it's symptomatic of the um, crazy levels of denial that mark the this industry. The truth is, we do have an engineering solution, and it's called solar panels and windmills. Uh, you know, these are things we know how to do. In Germany last month on a sunny day generated more than half the electricity it used from solar panels within its borders. And Germany is a northern latitude country, you know, Munich is north of Montreal. Um, um, yeah, those are the engineering solutions. The problem is that they don't make as much money for Exxon and Shell and BP as the thing we've got now. And as long as they're able to keep making that kind of money and spending some of it to subvert and warp our democratic system, then we won't get those solutions on the scale we need and the time we need. I'm talking to you from a house that's, you know, whose roof is covered with solar panels and there are more out on a uh, stand in the yard and, uh, you know, that won a prize for being the most energy efficient house in Vermont the year it was built and on and on. But I don't fool myself that that's how we're going to solve this problem. Uh, we're going to solve it if we, we solve it by changing the basic ground rules. And that'll happen only if we can match the power of the fossil fuel industry. They've got all the money. We're not going to work in that currency. It's going to have to be in numbers, in passion, in creativity, in spirit, in the kind of currencies that movements can bring. And, and some of the time we'll have to, I suppose, spend our bodies. Um, hopefully we can, we can begin to change the power balance a little bit here. I think what the numbers, and they are hard mathematical numbers, but I think what they really add up to is, is a moral case. Um, uh, they make it clear for the first time that there really is an enemy in this fight. So how then do we take on the fossil fuel industry? Well, if you try to think about how you might go after fossil fuel industry, how you might weaken them enough politically that they would be need to tell their minions in Congress say, to accept some kind of deal and whatever. One of the models that comes to mind, one of the few times people have ever been able to stand up to really big, powerful business interests, uh, is, is the campaign that people waged abroad and then here uh, about companies doing business in South Africa. This was mostly in the 1980s. It led to the divestment of stock in those companies by hundreds of colleges and municipalities um, <clears throat> and state governments. And both Desmond Tutu and Nelson Mandela said later that it had been an absolutely key part of the fight for the liberation of that country. I think that it's exactly the same logic that we probably should be applying here. And so beginning um, the night after the election in November, uh, we're going to mount a, a roadshow across America for 20 nights, uh, 20 cities, a uh, bunch of friends, my dear friend and collaborator uh, Naomi Klein will come along for some of it. And uh, we're going to try and 
um, educate people and communities about this math and then send them to work to talk with their college boards of trustees, their uh, municipal pension funds, that sort of thing, about whether or not it makes sense, say, to put your college's investments in companies whose business plan guarantees that students won't have a a really a planet on which to enact that education or to put your pension savings in investments in companies that uh, guarantee that there really won't be much of a world to retire to. I'd love to end with going back to 1989 when you first started writing and talking about some of these issues. Do you feel that that's something that's remained consistent is knowing that unless the U.S. leads the way that nothing is going to happen? When I started writing about all this, I was I, 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 I was a much better writer and, uh, and a much less uh, programmatic thinker. Um, the End of Nature is actually a kind of beautiful book. It's a sort of extended, it, it was some of the first reporting about climate change, but the part of the book is a kind of extended meditation on what it felt like to realize that um, there was no place on the planet left untouched by uh, the hand of man. Um, you know, I was living deep in the Adirondacks, uh, the great wilderness of the American East, and deeply in love with that wild place. And yet I knew, as I read the science, that as we change the temperature and hence the flora and the fauna and things, even very remote places, uh, uh, that it wasn't wild anymore. I mean, you know, Thoreau once wrote that he could, how did he put it, he could walk a half hour from his house and come to a place where no man stood from one year's end to another and there consequently politics was not for politics was but the cigar smoke of a man. Um, I can walk in the Adirondacks five minutes to places I don't think any human being or other human beings ever stood uh, and yet our politics are there omnipresent now. Um, because we're changing the basic conditions. So that's what that book, in a sense, was mostly about. As time went on, um, and as I learned more and more and more about the kind of practical urgencies of this problem and watched them play out, I guess I got better reasons for my work. You know, I got to places like Bangladesh and watched people dying, lots of people, from the effects of climate change. Um, I was there for the first big outbreak they ever had of dengue fever in Dhaka, and there were lots of people dying. And I, you know, I got it because uh, I was spending a lot of time in the slums, so I got bit by the wrong mosquito eventually. Um, I was as sick as I'd ever been, but I didn't die. And I, I remember feeling mostly just how incredibly unfair this was. The, the 150 million people in Bangladesh. When the UN tries to measure how much carbon each country emits, you can't even get a number for them. They're just a rounding error. Uh, you know, the four percent of us in the U.S. are responsible for, you know, nigh on to thirty percent of uh, the global warming gases currently in the atmosphere. Um, and I guess it was experiences like that that started convincing me, A, that yeah, we were going to need to figure out how to work here at home hard to kind of set the example, and B, that it wasn't enough just to be writing anymore, that it was time to be trying to figure out how to organize. Uh, and I do think that there's real possibilities of a global agreement if we could ever get 
the U.S. off the stick. But since we're historically by far the largest emitter of carbon, um, and since we remain, for better or for worse, the you know kind of organizing principle of the planet at the moment, uh, unless we can get our act together to do something, the odds that the rest of the world will summon the political will to do very much seem um, microscopic to me. This episode of Too Much Information is called Hot. It was written and produced by myself, Benjamin Walker, with Bill Bowen. It featured Bill McKibben, Kurt Thompson, Clint Keener, Chris Haley, Laura Mayer, and TMI's special correspondent, Chris. And making his debut is a brand new TMI correspondent, Josh Glenn. There's even more information on the TMI playlist page and that's where you can subscribe to the TMI podcast as well. All that at WFMU.org.